What's really going on, everyone? Back again with another episode. This is season four, episode six. Before we get into our special guest today, be sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms. That includes Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at WRGOPod. Be sure to like, listen, subscribe, and share on all of our streaming platforms. That includes wherever you listen to podcasts and YouTube, where our numbers are going up sensationally. So before... Uh, we want to give a little intro to our uh, very, very special guest. This is actually our first guest of 2024. Uh, we have Wen Cooney Sant, uh, for the CEO and co-founder uh, of Politicking. Uh, if you all recall, we've had a colleague of her, George Wilson, on a couple years ago, I think. She talked about kind of what they all were doing, but now we also have another person. So, uh, Wen Cooney, please, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Noah. I'm really excited to be here, actually. I think it's awesome that you all were able to interview Jordan a few years back, and and now you get me, and I'm very honored to be the first guest of 2024. Just elated to be with you all and excited to get into it today. Yeah, I mean, so I guess we can just go right into what you said. So I guess tell us, um, you know, it's been a while since we had uh, Jordan on a long time, probably a couple of years ago. So give our listeners a refresh. Just tell us about politicking so our listeners can fully understand. Sure. So Politicking is a social political mobile platform. Our focus is really on galvanizing and engaging historically disengaged communities. So that's anyone from a first time voter to black and brown voters to members of historically disenfranchised and disengaged communities. So black and brown people, LGBTQ plus people, uh, immigrant communities, etc. So we really service a myriad of demographics and we're proud to do so. Um, and really what we, our goal is, is to actually ensure that people have the information that they need to cast an educated and informed vote. So we provide information that incorporates candidate platforms. We provide information that helps you demystify the amendments and referendums that often appear on your ballot. Um, and then we do a myriad of conversations on our actual social media channels, talking to elected officials, thought leaders, different people in the community, people running for office. Um, and so it's always exciting. And I find it so, so filling to do. But, you know, also it just really reaches a wealth of people. So I'm excited about 2024. It's a busy year for us politically, but we're continuing to do the good work. What are you most excited about in um, the 2024 elections this year? Well, I'm excited to see how young people turn out. Um, you know, that's something that we always kind of use as a barometer to mark our own success, to see how young people are, are actually going to the polls and casting ballots. So I'm excited to see that. And I think young engagement is so necessary, particularly in these times. I think we are seeing young people really get, you know, energized about particular issues. My hope and concern, frankly, is oftentimes too often our advocacy work is relegated to social media. And I want to make sure we're taking it a step further to actually ensure that we're actualizing our political capital at the ballot. So Can you, you talk about, oh, sorry, Henry. No, <laughs> you probably was going to ask it up. Um, well, you mentioned earlier about um, you saw that a lot of young voters were behind certain issues and stuff like that. What have you seen um, young voters kind of attaching themselves to for this election? Right now, it's all about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think three months ago, we were thinking more about student loans. 
But now it's about Gaza, quite frankly. And I think a lot of young people, particularly people that look like us, are paying attention to that really because it is another form of what we would identify as apartheid. Um, it is a segregated state um, that the Palestinian people that are there that are living in Gaza are living in. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of atrocities. We're seeing genocide. We're seeing race-based genocide. And so that's something that I think does not sit well with a lot of young people, a lot of young voters in particular. And quite frankly, it's very concerning the United States involvement in this conflict. And so I think that we will see the American public really vocalize their thoughts on that conflict at the ballots in November. And you're kind of tricking into our questions here because, uh, one thing I personally want to know, especially from your perspective, you're kind of doing that groundwork um, and providing that real-time information. How do you think you can encourage Black and Brown people to get involved when we know, like you just kind of explained, a major issue for us is America's participation in like what's going on in Gaza. And we know, we maybe know who our prominent two options are going to be. Uh, what are your thoughts there? I think we have to do what we have always been promoting here at Politicking, which is educating folks. People can't care about what they don't know and foremost what they don't understand, Henry. So really trying to demystify things and break them down in easy to understand palatable bites is something that we focus on at Politicking. Um, that's why we focus so heavily on infographics, you know, breaking down the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a timeline fashion. So people understand this did not start last year. This has been going on for years, for decades. And so I think it's really important to help people contextually understand it, but then going a step further, okay, I'm a black woman in America. How does this affect me? And so pointing them to historical resources. And if you really think about it, you know, you'll see the civil leaders, not only of the United States, but of the world have been talking about um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for decades. Nelson Mandela, for example, um, Angela Davis wrote an entire book on the similarities between the Palestinian conflict and the civil rights era. And so I think people oftentimes, they might see an issue happening in the news and think, yeah, that's really sad, but I don't see how it relates to me. And so I think what's really consequential is making sure that we draw that line, that thread that A, should really just be based off of the humanity of all people, but further illustrating that it's extremely important to see how non-white people are being treated throughout the globe um, and focusing and paying attention to that. Yeah, I think you had mentioned, I think a lot about, I think, how we receive information and putting up infographics and I think trying to make, you know, these complex issues really digestible. How do you think the media at writ large can do a better job of, I think, actually explaining this, providing context, things that are hard, but they historically don't do, especially in these matters where if you're not, you know, if you don't have visibility into our community or if you don't have people who are on staff from our community, it's going to be hard to tell our story. So how do you feel the media can do a better job um, of kind of doing what you all do at politicking? Well, you said the answer in your question, actually, no, they'd have to hire more people that are servicing the communities that they're having a hard time reaching, you know, like, don't 
just be like, well, I don't really understand how we can help black or brown people. Like, why don't you hire some and find out firsthand? You know, you can get a firsthand account of what's plaguing the black community. You can get a firsthand account of what's plaguing the Latino community. Like, we're right here and we're hardworking and we're ready to, you know, really go and strategize and, and even like hiring organizations like politicking as consultants, like, Hey, we need help. We're having a diversity problem. Most of them are having a diversity problem. Um, and, and it's not di only diversity in skin, it's diversity in thought, it's diversity in age, it's diversity in gender, um, it's diversity in sexuality. It's so many things, socioeconomic status. I mean, we could go on, but I think it's important to have a diverse workforce and we have to stop looking at diversity through the lens of race only because we know black people are not a monolith. There are black Democrats, there are black Republicans and everything in between and on the fringes of that. And so we need to make sure that those are categorically represented in the newsroom. Do you, as someone who's kind of in politics, I think one thing that I've always noticed is that I think um, there's kind of this unwritten rule or unspoken rule of I think that other media groups, politicians think that all of a sudden when they're talking to voters who look like us, they all of a sudden have to communicate differently in terms of how they engage, what they do when they engage. And a lot of it to me from the surface seems actually very kind of belittling in terms of you think that we can't handle information that you would to white counterparts. How do you feel like politicking kind of tries to bridge that gap where it's just, hey, here's the information. And I think oftentimes, well, I'll let you, do you feel like oftentimes the media and politicians often kind of belittle our intelligence in terms of actually communicating in terms of politics? So I, I won't say that I think the media does it because quite frankly, none of the major media stations are actually even like for us, right? Like CNN, Fox News, like they're not, even like we're a small black people make up like 13% of the people in the United States. Like we're not their target demographic already. Um, and so when I think more about like black centered media, like the grill, like I actually don't think they talk down us. Like I think that they speak to us in, in, in an intellectual way. I think what you're saying, Noah, more so happens in like person to person dialogue. Like when white people are on panels or dialoguing with people in their everyday lives and trying to like black explain issues and, you know, using all types of really weird jargon that really you're not allowed to use. Um, and so I, that's when I see that more. I don't necessarily feel like I see it as much in the media. Um, I see it more so in like interpersonal interactions or like live events. And that is a, very problematic and i think yeah the live events one was the one i was gonna shout out yeah yeah like and we gotta like we gotta check that right like we have to speak up when we're sitting on those panels or even when we're in the audience asking the questions like i don't need y'all to you know speak differently and for me personally in my everyday like i don't code switch like as y'all can see like i'm going to speak exactly how i'm speaking to anyone and it's going to be high level and like everybody just has to get familiar. And then I might also throw in a curse word and again, everyone can get familiar. So I feel like as black people, we actually have to stop doing it because it's partially our faults too. Like we go into these white spaces and we code switch and we placate white people. And it's like, I'm just not going to do that. Like I am who I am. I speak how I speak. And also we have to stop letting especially our younger counterparts, because this happened to me when I was a kid, just because you have a great vocabulary, you are not an Oreo. You're not sounding white. I don't, I don't like that. I don't subscribe to those notions. 
just because I'm well-read and well-educated and might want to use SAT word in my everyday language, that doesn't mean that I sound white or that I'm an Oreo or whatever, whatever else, you know, colloquialisms that we throw upon like well-spoken black kids. I just think that that stuff is really defeating. And it also like makes it not cool to be smart. And I, I rebuke that. Like, I think it's very cool to be smart and it's very cool to be an intellectual. And I wish that we lauded black children for that in the same way that we do for their athletic abilities. I like, you just spoke to my whole upbringing because I always thought I was the smart, cool kid and my friends would kind of like <laughs> poke at me for doing what you just said, using SAT words in a casual conversation or like just being myself um, and to that point of not close, which I, all my friends are like, Henry, I'm so curious to know how you perform in a corporate environment because I'm so much of who I am. Um, so I appreciate you like speaking to that, but like kind of taking that and then navigating back to like our political uh, course, um, like with affirmative action and diverse, diversity and inclusion kind of, you know, being on a chopping block um, with some of these politicians and corporations in the Supreme Court, as we've seen with like their recent ruling. Uh, how do you think politicians can maybe step up or advocate for just us as Black people who don't have to go into these spaces and code switch? And we like, there was a natural hair bill that was passed in like a Southern state recently that doesn't protect us in certain ways for wearing our natural hairstyle. So how can politicians get more involved uh, from your perspective for advocating for diversity and inclusion? For sure. Well, first off, I think we got to start by like applauding the people who are doing the good work, right? Like give them their flowers while they're still in office, support them, support their bids for reelection. And when I say support them, like, Yes, that means like giving them a round of applause, but like I always say, give them a round of funding, help them fundraise so that they can stay in office, help them campaign, go knock on some doors for them, go, you know, put your friends on about them, you know what I mean? Go to the events that they're putting on. Like, I think that's really how you show support to them. And then also, like, you know, championing these issues so that other people, who aren't initially supported can find out about it and also champion them as well. So I think that's so important. And, you know, like you mentioned, Henry, like DEIA efforts, they're being chipped away, you know, from the fabric of this country, unfortunately. And, you know, it, it, it's really frustrating because I feel like with the election of President Obama, people started coining this term post-racial society. I have no idea what that even means, nor do I even believe that even remotely exists here in America. But they started using this post-racial society propaganda. And so what that led to is people thinking, well, we don't even need affirmative action because racism is just a thing of the past. And we don't even need that. Like, you know, Black people, they're doing fine. Black women, you know, they're the most educated in this country. Like, why do they need help? You know, like, it doesn't make... So people started using our strides as propaganda against mm. affirmative action, not understanding that the reason why we are the most educated is because some of us had that extra little boost, you know, to get into those spaces. And that is just starting to level and equalize the playing field. And I, I was actually talking to a friend of mine earlier who's a black man 
And I'm like, okay, like we need to shift our focus to now to the brothers, you know, because now we have a huge achievement gap, gap between the brothers and the sisters. And so I don't think we should be rolling back any affirmative action until all of these things are, you know, really proportionate and they're not anywhere close. And so I just think that unfortunately the hegemony is using our successes as an example to say, hey, we don't need this anymore. I, the lens that I view it through is our successes mean that, hey, this is working and that we should keep it. But unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing in, in America. So we have to support elected officials who you know are vocal on the issue. Get out, vote, support them, fundraise for them, door knock for them. And also it, vote because what we saw with affirmative action, what we're seeing with DEIA, a lot of it is consequence of the Supreme Court. And for folks who don't know how the Supreme Court works, they are appointed. It is a lifetime appointment. And guess who appoints them? The president. So if you don't go out and vote for the president that has similar views as you, then they're going to put someone that shares their views into office and they will die in that office. And so you can have someone with archaic thinking there for 60 years. And that's what we, that's what we've been seeing as of late. And so presidential appointments to the Supreme court, they're super important. Um, that's why a lot of people don't have access to abortion as we speak. So we have to pay attention to, Yes, we're thinking about the presidential election, but their power stretches far beyond what they can do as president. It's also about who they bring into their cabinets, their Supreme Courts, who they appoint, you know, federal appointees. These are all things that are extremely important. So I want us to pay attention to that just collectively as the people. When you talk about diversity and like um, DEI programs, I feel like every election, at least since I've been born, like I feel like the black vote has always been naturally assumed to be like Democrat. So I'm just curious to what you think that Democrats can do better for this election to entice more black voters to just be more involved. Even if you mentioned um, if they have plans on advocating for more people to be on board when they do get or if they do win the election, are there any things that you think that they could do better at, you know, enticing more young voters, black voters? Yeah, and I want to answer that question, actually, from a two sided, like, what can the Democrats do better, but also what can the Republicans do better? Yeah. Because the way that I look at it, Mackenzie, is that the Democrats, they don't do anything because they feel they already have the vote. And the Republicans, they don't do anything because they feel like they already don't have the vote. And so what I think that we need to do as a people is make them compete for our vote, make them earn the vote. I don't really care who earns it. I want somebody to earn it. I'm leaving here with something. So I just feel like if we automatically give it to the Dems without having them do something to prove to us. And when I say do something, I'm talking about student loans. Yep. Mm -hmm. Cause I feel like we're long overdue. So like have them do something to actually gain your vote. Like I don't think we should be giving our vote away for free to any party. And so I think that we hold people accountable we see what people have done historically. We see what they've promised and what they delivered on. And I think voting should be like a report card. Like, okay, you promised me X, Y, and Z. You delivered on X and Y. If I give you another term, 
I need to trust that you're going to work on Z. Right. And I think what we do instead is like, mm, I like this person's tie. Mm, I don't like this. I don't like the way he talks or he's too sleepy or he's too inflammatory. No, we really need to get to the core of the issues. Like, what can you do? What have you done for me lately? That's how I'm trying to vote. And I think more people should really think through that when they're voting. But now I will have to say now, if if the projected people who are projected to be um, at the table going down for November, um, if they're there and I feel like more people are like, what if we've seen this already before? We've we've had both sides in office for a term and I kind of am not interested in either and I just don't even want to vote. What do you have to say to people who kind of taking your advice, they go through the report card, but then they're disappointed and then they still feel like they're coming out empty handed. Like I said before, I'm leaving here with something. If you're not interested in the presidential candidates, fine. Are you telling me you're not interested in a single congressional candidate, a single Senate candidate, a single mayor, a single superintendent? I mean, there are so many other things that are going to appear on the ballot versus the one thing at the top of it. And so I urge people and politicking as a whole urges people stop paying so much attention to what's happening at the top of the ballot and pay attention to what's happening at the bottom of the ballot. Cause that's where you're seeing actual change nine times out of 10. And so fine. If you're frustrated with the two parties that, or not the two parties, the two candidates that we have, I get it. I'm frustrated too, but I know that there's a congressman or woman I want to vote for. And I know that there's a mayor that needs my support. And I know I need to vote on a few amendments because you know, the place I live, they need a little bit of help with certain things. And I want to make sure that my taxes aren't being raised too much, but I also want to make sure that there's gun safety in certain areas. So you cannot tell me as an engaged constituent that there is no benefit in you voting on any of these things. I can understand if you're frustrated about one of those things, but it's like, do you throw the whole thing away just because you're frustrated about one particular decision that's going to appear on it? My, my thoughts would be no, you know, you can be frustrated about that one decision, but you make your vote count in every other place. And I think that's how we start to see an actualized change in our communities. One thing I want to ask you, because I think this is something that I think about a lot. Um, I often think sometimes I think we get into this interesting conversation where I think we're talking about Biden and Trump. And then I think we're trying to obviously compare the two. And in a part of my head, I I think I'm thinking to a certain extent, do you feel like we have an unrealistic expectation of what politics is? And then I think I think part of the conversation that I think we have is baked in that we are going to leave with something. We might not. We might not leave. We might leave with a crumb as opposed to, you know, if we had that attitude and then all of a sudden row is off the table or now we like certain things are gone. So I think what do you say to the point that? Sometimes voting just has to be a mechanism of self-defense. And what I would say in this instance, I don't think we have the ability right now to say, hey, I actually want something. It's like, no, I'm trying to like just keep the house in order. And I think sometimes I think we get into this conversation of like, yeah, we have to get like, yeah, student loans might not come, but I don't want to see a four years where all this other stuff could come that I can't even foresee. So what would you say to that? Because I think sometimes when we talk about national politics and I think engaging young voters, I think we often often encourage them to kind of say, well, they ain't doing nothing for me. It's like, yeah, that, that, that might be the case, but sometimes we just have to say, Hey, let's just get to the next four years. What do you, what do you say to that? Because I think sometimes I think we, 
I think we danced on that line between, I think, having this this really over-the-top view sometimes of politics while also just saying, like, hey, let's just let's be real for a second. And but I'm I'm curious your thoughts. So I actually like what you said about like using voting as a defense mechanism because it's it's exactly what you said, no, it's like, do you want your civil rights to be rolled back a hundred years? Because that could also happen. So like you said, sometimes maybe you're not moving forward, but voting is keeping you from moving backwards. You know, it's preventing the backslide. So I think that's equally as important. Um, and I think that even before getting to the point of like feeling like maybe we're viewing politics in a more like of a fantasy way. I think that's when, you know, some, some of us young people need to step up and run for office. You know, when we're starting to see some stagnancy, when we're not feeling excited or incentivized, that's when we need to tap one of ourselves in to go and get it. And I think that oftentimes we think we need to be much older to do that. But if you look at politics, the face of politics is getting younger, maybe not at the presidential level, but at the mayoral level, at the congressional level, et cetera. Um, there are young people, city councilmen or women, aldermen, all of that. Like people are, are claiming their seat at the table at an earlier age. And I'm all for that. And I think if politics is not exciting, let's make it exciting. Let's get somebody that we know to run. Let's support them. And let's start throwing our weight around. What are your thoughts on the upcoming, well, I guess not really upcoming generation, but Gen Z is super involved in politics. They are definitely building a voice for themselves. How do you see them when I don't know, are they able to vote yet? But how do you see them playing a role into this new political uh, climate, I guess? So it's hard to say, um, you know, when I'm thinking about them, if they are, here's my, here's my thought on a lot of the generations or folks younger than me. I'm 31. So I'm a millennial. I think that a lot of people in my generation included are social media warriors. And I love that for them. However, please take your warrior self down to the ballot and vote. My issue is when the advocacy stays online. It's because you're on Twitter all day fighting the power, and I love that for you, and it's going viral, but you're not setting foot in the voting booth, and we got to make sure that their actions online are reflective of what we're seeing in the ballot box, and so that's that's the number one thing that I think, you know, Gen X's, Gen Z's, like, they got to pay attention to that because if not you'll end up in a situation, like I always use the situation, um, you know, if you're in a neighborhood that is predominantly black, but there's a small population of Jewish people, I'm talking about Brooklyn, past Brooklyn, and the 10% the of view, Jewish people are the only ones voting, guess whose interests are going to be carried to on the ballot? It doesn't matter if there was 90% black people living in that area, y'all gonna have to get up out of there because the 10% that are voting are this particular ethnicity and they're making stuff happen for their community and you're not. So who's really to blame? And so I really think that it takes more than just living there and being densely populated. It's like, no, we really have to make sure that we're casting educated and informed ballots. And so that's super important. People, if you don't make decisions, just know the decisions are still being made. Someone's making them for you. 
So like you're kind of jumping around what I want to kind of jump into uh, in terms of like black people voting, standing up for ourselves. How did like people who are fully tapped out, they like they only can think at the high level of president. I have my bills to pay. My paying wages are low. I barely have health insurance. I have real problems. Uh, I'm not concerned about city councilmen because I already know what they own. They're just trying to get you know, wherever they want to go politically. If that's my mind frame going into this election, and we know that like us as black and brown people have a lot at stake on that, you know, bigger level from affirmative action topics we've talked about, uh, DNI, and then like Gaza is a big thing. Those are bigger issues that we can think about because, you know, we're of a certain demographic of black people, but those black people who are really tapped out and not, you know, as tuned in, and you know, they can have the time to care or go through the report card, as Mackenzie mentioned. How do we, like, engage them and organize that Black vote to where we are leaving with something? Because, I mean, to some degree, us, we're going to be politically engaged. But how do we get those people to be more informed or make more informed decisions when they do go to the ballot? I think it all starts at the home, Henry. Like, I volunteer with this, like, nonprofit and like, I take it very seriously because in these after school programs and like minority areas, like I live in Southeast DC and like these kids, they might be 15, 16, 17, whatever. They are like the champion of their whole family. Like this is, this is the hope of their family. Like little Johnny, he's going to go to college and make a better life for everybody. All of us that are living in this house, all eight of us. And so I really have to make sure to pay attention to little Johnny because Johnny, I might be just teaching him, you know, what's a Democrat, what's a Republican. He's teaching that to his whole family when he goes home. And so I believe every black person has a hood family member or a few. Usually we got to talk to our cousin that that's not all there. You know, our uncle, that's a little tapped. He just got out. That's okay. Uncle. Let me take you and show you how to get registered. Let me take you and show you how to really read the ballot. You know what I'm saying? We have to start with our own. I always, I say the same thing to white people. I'm like, don't worry about talking to black people. Why don't you talk to your own people? Start with talking to your racist uncle because you know who he is. I would say the same thing for black people. Start talking to your uncle that just got out. Talk to your aunt that may have had, you know, a rough life, you know, Talk to your family that, you know, might have been on the other side of the tracks and make sure that they're doing what they have to do as well. And so I think that it starts really within our own communities with black people. You know, unfortunate, fortunately, we are starting to get into the precipice of generational wealth. But a lot of us, we are like one generation removed from poverty or maybe just a few generations if we're lucky. And so start with revisiting your your parents' upbringing, you know, where they came from, their roots, you know, their communities, volunteering, giving back to those communities, I think it can be very, very grassroots. Like I said, in a Black community, in a Black family, there's always going to be one cousin or two cousins or three uncles that are deranged, that think really crazy, that are on Facebook writing the long post. That's who I want you to start with your uncle that's writing the long post on Facebook, because that's where you start. And you already know him. You already have a, re a rapport with him. That's why I would always advise that versus going out in the street 
because you don't know that person. So they don't have to really take anything you say seriously. But I guarantee you that that family member that's kind of a little bit off the beaten path, but they look up, they might look up to you so much. You know, they're like, man, like Henry went to school. He got his stuff together. He got a nice little apartment. Like, that's that's my little nephew. Like, I bang with him. So they will listen to you. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like we have to, like, carry that as maybe the first generation or second generation. Like, we have to utilize that because that's power. The That's influence, you know? So I really want Black people... Start with your own family. Make sure everybody in your own family is voting. Start with your own community. Make sure everybody in your own community is voting. And then from there, we can start doing, you know, mobilized outreach. But it, it starts at home. You know, you mentioned influence. And I'm curious to think, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think about when you see like celebrities like Cardi B last year did, or not last year, but last election, she did an interview with Biden. And just when celebrities get involved, like, what do you think about, um, when celebrities use their influence to try to like get young voters involved in the election? That's a great question, Mackenzie. It's like a double-edged sword, to be honest. On one hand, I love it because they have audiences that may have never thought about it or may not have ever been exposed to it otherwise. So I love it. But then sometimes when celebrities start talking, they don't know what they're talking about. They have a lot of influence still, you know? So, like, if Sexy Red comes on and says, oh, well, you know, I'm supporting Trump because he gave me the stimmy, and people are like, yeah, and guess what? Now I'm going to support Trump because I feel like he gave me the stimmy. That can be dangerous in terms of misinformation or not understanding that, like, Congress actually voted to give people stimulus checks, and it was part of the economic stimulus package. Like, you know, so when Celeb you gotta we gotta understand that celebrities, although having a lot of influence, that doesn't mean that they're smart. It doesn't mean that they're well read. It doesn't mean they're learned. It just means they got a big audience. So they actually might be the cousin or uncle I was talking about, but they just have a hundred million followers. So that's scary again. But I so I think it's it's good when they've done their research. And again, I'm not saying they have to be one political party or another. Either way, it's fine. Just have done your research. Um, so as long as they are informed and, and speaking from an informed perspective, I think it could be very powerful. Sadly, I think we can count the number of people um, who are like that, or maybe on one hand, maybe two max if we're being diligent. But I think, don't you think that that I think speaks to, I think a lot of work that you're doing, but also a lot of work that I think Democrats and Republicans, I mean, this is a two-sided issue here, um, a lot of people aren't meeting voters where they are. They're not communicating to them about what they see, about what they do. Like, I think, of course, like for people like us on this call, student loans is one because we went to school. But like, if you didn't, then what are the issues that those black people are facing in terms of housing, education, transportation, public safety? Like, I think we don't talk about or politicians don't actually talk about those things in terms of like, I live in D.C., you live in D.C., there is a bad little crime problem right now. But like, how does that actually take place, not only in white communities, but also communities that are black that are suffering the brunt of it? But like, you don't hear politicians talk about that. So then when it comes to election time, they're like, oh, yeah, sexy red, go out there. What do you think we can actually do to, I think, actually like break up that kind of thing to where a bigger, probably the biggest part of politics for our community is that people don't feel like they're actually being spoken to. I don't hear anybody talking about how rent prices are going up in every city that I know a black person that I know lives in. No one talks about that. I would say no, 
sorry, go ahead, Noah. No, no, no. I'm just saying, I think, what do you say to, I think the thing where I think it's, we can have all these advocates, we can do all these things, but at the end of the day, there's always going to be a disconnect and it's always going to be an uphill battle because I think at the end of the day are the issues that people are actually struggling with. Are those issues actually being talked about compared to other communities where I think obviously, and you know this because you're in politics, there's a over, there's an overrepresented sample of the Midwestern blue collar worker who, and there's a over representation of the fentanyl crisis. And there's all these kind of different things that I think we always hear and hear, but when it comes to the issues that we are facing, I don't hear anybody talking about making sure that rent prices don't go crazy and making sure that crime is actually a thing that black people can feel safe in their own communities. But I think that leads to a, a bigger disconnect. So I think, what do you think that I think not only Democrats, but I think politicians in general can do to actually bridge that gap? Because if they don't, it's always going to be an uphill battle every 11 months before an election to actually get people engaged. So what I would like to see with like the Cardi B's and the sexy reds of the world in terms of like engagement and meeting people where they're at, I would love for them to ask the questions that they have instead of like just spewing stuff, like ask the questions on behalf of the communities that you come from. You know what I'm saying? Like if this is an issue back in your hood in St. Louis, I want, I would rather them be the interviewer and ask the elected officials the question and, and not code switch, like we talked about before, like ask it just how you would ask it if you were talking to your friends behind the scenes. And that way, I think that brings in their communities, right? And it helps their communities to be like, oh, wow, like I wanted to know what happens or like, you know, what happens if if we don't have any enough money for WIC anymore? Or like, what happens if this or what have like, you know, my sister's going to college and she doesn't know how she's going to pay for it. Like, I would rather those elect those those celebrities ask the questions actually and ask them in, you know, whatever, you know, however they normally communicate. And I think that'll actually resonate with their listeners better than them just kind of volunteering information about stuff that they really may not be cleared. Like I I almost like the idea of like a like a celebrity boot camp, like for politics. Like, why don't y'all like let's get all of y'all in the house to learn about this together? And let's televise it and let's make it cool because people will like that because it's their favorite celebrities. But also, like, you're talking about, like, what is, you know, the House of Representatives? What is that? Or what's the Electoral College? Or, like, what's gerrymandering? I've never heard about that before. So, like, stuff like that, like, that would be interesting to me. I would watch that and I think I would learn from it. So you just gave me my next like business idea. So when you know I tap you, don't be mad because that's that that's what we that's the content we should be producing. And for the Hollywood producers that keep watching our podcast, like I hope you hear this because like this is the real like to that point. Like <clears throat> I stay in Atlanta. I am near the biggest studio production in America. But the type of content that's getting produced out of that studio isn't high edge hitting or hitting us to where, how Noah said, meeting us where we at to where we can engage with it, understand it, dissect it, and kind of do something about it. Take grassroots from the level of which us and you and all of the organizations that do it, do it. But meeting those folks where they can actually engage with it um, and kind of understand, you know, What's going on? So I I, I like that idea. Already <laughs> works, Henry. Let's go. We we can create it. You know, if whenever we can dream it, we can do it. So I I really think there's so much opportunity 
for us to do really great things together. That's why I love joining podcasts like this because it allows us to really think tank and dialogue as a people, which I think is so, so important. We don't, we don't get opportunities to do that often. I was on mute. Well, I think we, on behalf of us, and I think all of our listeners, we want to uh, thank you. But before uh, I close, please tell them how to get in touch uh, with you and also with politicking. Absolutely. First off, shout out what's really going on. Like Noah, Mackenzie, Henry, phenomenal job. I really enjoyed this interview. Um, you guys can stay tapped in with me personally at Winnie the Ish. That's W-I-N-N-I-E-T-H-E-I-S-H or professionally at Politicking. That's P-O-L-I-T-I-C-K-I-N-G. Check us out, politickingapp.com or Politicking app on Twitter. We're pretty much on all social media platforms. Um, we have really interesting um, guests come on on a weekly basis. Our most recent one was a gentleman um, that talked about his organization, Segregation by Design, which talked about redlining in certain communities and um, urban renewal and, and how highways were used to divide um, and destroy Black communities. So really cool. It's still up. You guys go check it out. Um, Check us out in person. We have live events. We are actually doing an event in Selma, Alabama. I don't know if y'all heard, but like Selma was one of these communities or were the second congressional district of Alabama. They actually pushed back because there was some gerrymandering going on and they got a new district drawn and they are now having their first congressional election for that district. And we're actually going to be hosting the uh, congressional forum. So we're very excited about that. We do events like that all over the country. And then lastly, you know, we have an annual conference that is at Howard University. We'd love for y'all to come. It's going to be in September, right around the time of CBC. It's like CBC for like a little younger people. And so we want y'all to come through to that. But check us out. Social media is the best way to connect with us for all of those things. Um, super excited. Hope you guys will have me back as elections get closer and let's just continue to dialogue. And I love what y'all are building. Awesome. So thank you so much. Uh, so that is all for this episode. Be sure to follow us on all of our social media accounts. That includes Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at WRGOPod. Be sure to like, listen, subscribe on all of our streaming platforms. That includes wherever you listen to podcasts and YouTube. And I will now look at Henry so he can 